you start up thinking about what it must be like to cling to the bottom of a plane and it's only when someone tells you what it's like that you suddenly get the real perspective and the plane swung round literally onto the runway and at that point he runs he looks up in one wheel well he thinks I'm not going to get up there runs to the other grabs hold of this bar and as he grabs hold of the bar the plane starts moving and so he's dangling out of the bottom of this plane hurtling down this runway and as it takes off he was able to talk with absolute clarity about how the wheel started to come up he comes round and the plane's dropping and he's like shit what's going to happen when this plane hits the mm. ground you're listening to the worldwide tribe podcast i'm your host jazz o'hara and together with some very special guests we'll be taking you on a journey across the world without you having to go anywhere we're here to amplify voices from the people leaving their countries and everything behind them, to the volunteers working alongside them. We'll be hearing from those currently living in refugee camps and people on the front line, the real heroes of today, the humans behind the statistics and the headlines. Join me as we transcend borders, nationalities, religions and languages to hear from the people with which we share this world, our worldwide tribe. Welcome back to season five of the Worldwide Tribe podcast. I've got some amazing stories to share with you this season, and we are starting off with a very important one today. In 2015, two young men called Carlito and Justin hid inside the wheel well of a plane flying from Johannesburg in South Africa to London. As the wheels of the plane were lowered for landing, Carlito fell from the sky to his death on the roof of an office building in West London. Against all odds, his best friend Justin survived and was found on the runway at Heathrow Airport. Today I speak to Rich Bentley, a filmmaker from London who spent five years looking for Justin and making a film about Justin and Carlito's story called The Man Who Fell From The Sky. Rich's film aims to show the human story behind making such a desperate and dangerous decision. There have only ever been 128 people recorded to have attempted a journey like this and only 24 of them have survived and this is not surprising because at every stage you are literally brought close to death you can fall from the plane as it takes off um, be crushed by the wheels as they retract back into the plane or die from the temperature during the flight because you are literally exposed to the elements and the temperature reaches as low as minus 81 degrees fahrenheit so you will, without a doubt, at least lose consciousness in these conditions which means that you are then likely to fall from the plane when the wheels are lowered for landing in this episode, Rich tells us about meeting a few miraculous survivors uh, of this journey, including Baswi, the first person to ever attempt doing this in 1946 when he was just 12 years old. He was fleeing Indonesia after the death of his parents. We also talk about when he met Osama, a 27-year-old Palestinian from Gaza who hid beneath a plane from Kuala Lumpur to Singapore. But for the most part, we talk about Carlito and Justin, who attempted this feat just a few years ago. 
it feels close to home because they were heading for London, which is actually the most popular destination for wheel well stowaways with 16 attempts in the last 25 years. Seems poignant that a flight is going overhead at the moment as I record this. Um, but I just want to tell you a little bit more about Carlito and Justin. So Carlito was raised in an orphanage in Mozambique and Justin was from a township in Johannesburg. This is where the two of them met, became friends and lived in a tent together whilst trying to survive. And I guess that's the common thread in all of these stories, right? Behind every headline about migrants trying to make it to the UK lies an individual story of someone driven by the dream of a better life. I hope you enjoy our conversation today. Not only do we cover this important story, but we also talk about storytelling with social purpose. We talk bias, privilege, and we talk about using Rich's film as a journalistic tribute to all of those in search of safety. Rich, hi. Hi. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Oh, this is such a pleasure. It's been a long time coming, hasn't it? It has, it has. Tell me a little bit about you. Who are you and what do you do? Yeah, so I'm a filmmaker by trade. My background, I suppose, is in television. And I've spent maybe 20 years uh, doing the good and the bad and the ugly of television. And then about 10 years ago, I was really unwell mentally. um, I've had OCD since a child and everyone thought it was hilarious that I did all of these random things. And then actually when I hit my mid-20s, for one reason or another, it really escalated and I became quite unwell. And essentially the courage that I needed to go and see someone for help came from a film that I watched that someone had made. And I suddenly realized the power of story and an individual story and how you can educate, but also inspire through just a really simple, authentic story. Mm -hmm. And so I accidentally, I suppose, ended up making some films by myself and with a friend of mine in the charity sector around mental health. And I decided that that's what I wanted to focus my skills on. And the fact that all of the programs that I'd made in television had taught me how to tell a really great story. And actually, I wanted the stories that I told to do more than just be entertaining or to be an hour's worth of someone's life on the sofa. So I've spent the last 10 years, along with my best mate, Sam, making films. And our sort of rule is, is that every film we make has some sort of social purpose behind Mm. it and it's sort of developed over time and now what we do is we make a film and of course that film will be screened and shown but then we we push it even further and look at how the film or the story that we've told can be used in other social settings so really my passion now lies in finding that one unique story that we can explore. And then the real sort of joy of it is when you smuggle in all the good stuff, you know, you smuggle in the bits that really challenge the stereotype or challenge the stigma or, or, or really drive that conversation on the sofa where the credits roll. I suppose I'm driven by wanting the audience to come to their own conclusion and to spend a few minutes reflecting on it rather than being told. And I think traditionally in filmmaking, you were told how to think and you were told that this was good and that they, that this other person was bad. And actually I really get, I suppose my, my kicks out of telling a story in a way where the audience feels safe and confident enough to have a discussion either on their own or with other people about what it explores. And, and I I think that's also led to this idea that you can tackle a really hard subject matter, 
but still have a lot of light. You know, it doesn't mm-hmm. need to be a dark and depressing story. It can be an empowering story. And that is a very long winded way of telling you essentially no. how I've ended up doing what I do. It's beautiful. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of synchronicities in the way that we try and share stories at the Worldwide Tribe with what you do. And the first film of yours that I watched was The Man Who Fell From The Sky. And that is what I would really love to talk to you about today because it really did stick with me. It really did encourage conversation afterwards. And I think it's a story that everybody needs to know, actually, because it's one person's story, but it reflects on a much bigger issue of immigration and asylum and what that looks like and how to get into the UK, right? And I'm I'm really interested in what initially got you interested in the story that encouraged you to begin making uh, The Man Who Fell From The Sky. It was at a time where immigration and borders were were becoming part of our daily news. So we were inundated, I suppose, with stories of people traveling under lorries and on dinghies. And they they were incredibly close to home. And I think that essentially the reason why this story struck me was that I live under the flight path at Heathrow. And I felt like this story had almost passed over me. It had hit the headlines. Yeah, literally. And then it hit the headlines and then vanished. And there was an interesting other time in thing, which was that a colleague of mine was getting married in Richmond and we'd gone to this wedding and it was beautiful. And we were sat having strawberries and cream on this bank overlooking the river. And that was on the same day as this incident had happened. And I Mm. thought, how on earth can we be living in this situation where in the same place on the same day, these two polar opposite things are happening. And so that's where it started. And then I think the other thing I should flag is that I was pretty naive into sort of how complicated and how hard it was going to be. The film was the hardest thing I've ever done. And it went on for five and a half years. And at many points I felt like giving up and at many points I thought it was never going to happen. And, you know, that comes through that struggle in the film of you trying to dig and finding obstacles and hitting walls. And yeah, I'm really interested in in what actually did keep you going, keep you researching, like the level and the depth of research that you did to bring this story together is, I mean, it's it's unprecedented with this story, you know, Um, nobody else had gone out of their way to find the survivor. Yeah, what was it? I got off with great enthusiasm. So at the very beginning, it was just pure enthusiasm. And then what I quickly found, which became fuel for me in a way, was that no one wanted to tell the story. It wasn't in anyone's interest. So when you spoke to the authorities, it wasn't a priority for them because it wasn't a crime. There was no there was no investigation really to be had. It was quite obvious what had happened. When you spoke to all of the third parties associated with it, like the airlines and the airports and all of those sort of places, you know, none of them, I suppose there was nothing, there was no reason for any of them to tell the story because, you know, the airline had just flown a plane from one place to the other. They had no idea that that had happened. The greater authorities, the voices that be were definitely not that keen to tell the stories, which it was nice in a way and quite poetic in the sense that I, I found that the only way I could do it was by 
speaking to other human beings just like myself. You know, they didn't necessarily need the job title. I wasn't going to find the answers through through the official bodies. I was going to find them through the community. And that's exactly what happened. And over the course of the first sort of three years, there were waypoints that were really encouraging. I've spoken to six other survivors. So just to give you sort of a sense of of the situation, there's been 109 recorded attempts of people thrown away in the landing gear of planes, Mm -hmm. 16 of which have been coming to London over the last 25 years. I think it's either the most popular or the second most popular destination for people to come to. And there's only been 24 people on the planet that have survived doing it because most people either die in the air or tragically fall. So over the course of the the beginnings of the project, I was having these absolutely fascinating conversations with people. I also flew out to Australia and met the first ever Wheelwell stowaway, a, a guy called Baz Wee, who has got an incredible story. Actually, maybe I should tell you a little bit of that story. I'd love that. So there, yeah, there's only 24 survivors. Mm-hmm. Um, Baz Wee was the first ever um, man to do it. And his story is absolutely tragic. He flew from Kopang to um, Darwin. Indonesia to Australia. Yeah, exactly. And at that time, there was civil unrest in his village. And his father was very senior in the village community. And his last memory was his father being killed and then running with his mother and his mother being shot and killed. And he ended up as a an, an orphan and was taken into care by the missionaries that come from Australia and he was living and working at the at the airport. Anyway, as as things started to settle down, the missionaries left and he felt like they were leaving him. So he smuggled himself into the bottom of a plane. He'd never been on a plane. He hid there for I don't know how long, but hours until the plane finally took off. And when it took off, it ended up circling Darwin Airport because of I don't know, air traffic control or weather. So he was in the air for much longer than he should have been. And he was really badly burnt, which is one of the most common injuries from survivors. And he was taken into hospital. Anyway, it's it's a long story, but what ended up happening was that he was seen as a sort of miracle child and he was taken in by the Aboriginal community and informally adopted. And over the course of the following years, he ended up being adopted by the Queen's representative of Darwin. And he grew up in this huge mansion house in the middle of Darwin and was known as the Copan Kid and was celebrated for being so brave and having survived this absolutely outrageous, wow. awful journey. And it it was so opposite to how all of the more recent stories that I was researching had been. That in itself, I think, was, you know, you were talking about what kept me going and that contrast, how he was essentially, you know, grabbed and looked after as a child who'd been through this awful situation in comparison to the awful treatment of not just the plain stowaways, but all of the migrants that were finding themselves in these awful situations. Mm-hmm. That led to me meeting a guy called Osama. Yeah, Osama was another Weirwar stowaway, right? Whose story was pretty different from Baswee's, as you say, and made for quite a strong contrast. Um, I know that he was a 27-year-old from Gaza in Palestine, yeah, who um, faced criminal charges after surviving hiding in the front wheel of a plane from Kuala Lumpur to Singapore. Yes, Osama invited me to go out to Kuala Lumpur for him to walk me through the steps of what had happened to him when he was trying to travel from Kuala Lumpur to Europe. 
that probably happened in the first maybe 18 months, two years of the project. And that was a huge point of fuel for me because I had never heard a story like it coming out of someone's mouth. And, you know, I'm a filmmaker. I speak to lots of people, but I, I literally couldn't imagine it. Osama was really articulate and was very much open to talking to me about the actual journey because there is this sort of unbelievable imagination. You, you start thinking about what it must be like to cling to the bottom of a plane and it's only when someone tells you what it's like that you suddenly get the real perspective of the sort of strength of the machine, the size of it, the, the, the pressure and the temperature and all of that sort of stuff. I did end up going out to Kuala Lumpur and Kuala Lumpur Airport... I don't know how I did that, but Kuala Lumpur Airport gave me permission to go back with him. It was the first time he'd returned to Malaysia. And he told this story of how he had hung out at the airport for three days before the flight, memorising the departure board, and then memorising it and walking outside down the fences and looking at the planes and working out which planes went where and what size of aircraft went where. So he'd put quite a lot of thought into how to do this. And he went as far as to say that he used to go into the toilets and get changed so that the security wouldn't notice him because he was essentially living at the airport. Anyway, on the third day, he, he travels to the airport. He, he waits for it to get dark. He walks to the very end of the runway. He jumps over two fences. And where the taxis queue for takeoff, he hides in the shadows. And the plane swung round, literally onto the runway. And at that point... He runs, he looks up in one wheel well, he thinks I'm not going to get up there, runs to the other, grabs hold of this bar, and as he grabs hold of the bar, the plane starts moving. And so he's dangling out of the bottom of this plane, hurtling down this runway, and as it takes off, he was able to talk with absolute clarity about how the wheel started to come up, and he sort of said that he just remained sort of relaxed, and he ended up being concertinaed between the tyres of the plane and said that his torso was the width of the two tires and it turns out that that's probably what saved his life because obviously they were incredibly hot and so they were burning him as he came up so this wasn't without injury but the plane that he was on was in transit via Singapore so 45 minutes later he said that his he came back round he'd sort of fallen unconscious but he, he doesn't think he was completely unconscious but he says it was really hazing a bit sort of um, disjointed he comes round and the plane's dropping and he's like shit what's going to happen when this plane hits the mm. ground. And he was able to talk about the back wheels hitting and his bag being ripped off his shoulder and his shoes coming off. And then him just closed his eyes and hung onto this bar. And when he opened them, he was taxiing to the gate. And then his story, you know, follows a familiar path in the sense that he was found, he was detained. He ended up in a detention centre in uh, Malaysia where he was essentially in a huge pen he described as being like the size of a football pitch with hundreds of other people. Some people had passed away. There was no hygiene provision or anything like that. He was fleeing from Gaza. He was fleeing because of the troubles there and he felt his life was in danger. And where he ended up was almost more horrific in, well, equally as horrific in a different way. And so those two contrasting stories, I think, sort of kept me going. And so, yeah, it went on. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I mean, it is, I think, for anybody hearing these stories, it is something that is beyond your wildest imagination. Anyone who's been on a plane or even who hasn't, it's so scary. These people, anybody who's done that, I feel should be celebrated as a hero. You're absolutely right, though, that that's often not the case. 
especially here in the UK. So it's just so peculiar because if you actually think about not just the experiences they've left and the and the, the horrific reasons why they've had to leave, but if you just isolate their journey alone, as you say, if it was any other circumstance, they would be embraced and they would be looked after and we would think it was horrendous and we would want to care for that person. And and I think, you know, as a filmmaker, I, 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 I'm, I'm no expert in this subject matter and I knew very little about it before I started on this journey. But from just a layman's perspective, I can't, I still can't get my head around why we seem to have lost the whole meaning of asylum and seeking safety. Mm -hmm. It's like, where did that happen? Because it just seems so counterintuitive. One of my motivations for making the film was that if, if an audience could get to know a character and get to know a little bit more about this story and see the parallels between our lives, which I know is a really sort of naive thing to say, but I wanted them to feel safe enough to be able to then take that minute afterwards and think, actually, when I read that headline, there is an entire family that is involved in that one individual's life. And I should have more compassion towards that. It's completely bonkers that I don't. Yeah, and I feel the film does that really well. And I think what adds to that is the fact that, you know, it actually starts with you hearing some statements from witnesses that maybe live under the Heathrow flight path or close to Heathrow and that they've actually experienced uh, some of these people or seen some horrible things. And it's, it's quite triggering, actually, some of those state witness statements at the beginning of the film because they're quite dehumanising, aren't they? You know, people are talking about, I wrote down, words like brain matter and like the state of the body and some, some quite triggering terms like that. And was that purposeful that you kind of wanted to take the viewer on a journey from a dehumanizing place to a more human place because it very much felt that way to me yeah absolutely I suppose we needed to start on our own home soil on the journey although there is that sort of triggering and dehumanizing language there was also quite a lot of compassion we found along Mm -hmm. that that route when we spoke to people Yeah, I think so. I think we needed to anchor it in the UK to be able to give us the starting point to go off on the journey, you know? Mm. It sort of felt like that's where it needed to start. Yeah, I mean, that bit at the beginning of the film, for me, I felt quite difficult to watch. And then it really started to grab me when you actually started to learn more about Carlito and Justin and who they were. And that was a real process that you went on. Let's talk a little bit about that and how um, you at first really had had nothing to go on, did you? You were kind of working with no information. Maybe Carlito was named, but Justin wasn't in, in the newspapers. Talk to me a little bit about that journey. From the sort of day it happened onwards, very little was known. We knew that there was a survivor that was in hospital and we knew that there had been a deceased man found. And it wasn't until a little while afterwards that an identity was released for the deceased. And so that was really the first major bit of information that we could go off. Mm-hmm. Before that, it was essentially scrabbling around to see if we could find out anything about the survivor, which we couldn't. Of course, once we found the name of Carlito, we were able to really start looking into it and quite quickly were able to start reaching out within the Mozambique community to see if we could find out more about him. 
But that was harder than I'd anticipated because you sort of assume that you would go on Facebook and essentially do a massive haul. And I obviously we did that and um and nothing really came back for ages. And I it went as far as me getting slightly obsessive because I went on Google Earth and ended up essentially I knew that he'd grown up in an orphanage and so there were only a handful of them. So I essentially did some crazy phone bashing where I essentially went on Google Earth and would track down all of the roads and then phoned everyone I could. So if there was a church, I'd phone a church. If there was a shop, I'd phone the shop and literally did it that way. I got into some hilariously confused conversations. Just, just asking them, do you know yes. this man? Yes. Basically. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. Who are you? What do yeah, you want? <laughs> totally. And um, there was this, uh, there was something about him working in a refrigeration company, which I'm not even sure is true now. So I found all the refrigeration companies oh in Mozambique. God. Yeah, it was really, really hard. I sort of really unintentionally turned into like a... Detective. Yeah, sort of, yeah. <laughs> but it was really slow. I think when, it, when you tell it back like this, or if you're at, like at, a, you know, at lunch telling someone the story, it sounds really exciting, but it happened like painfully slowly. And like literally months and months and months would go with absolutely nothing. And then one little tiny nugget of something would set you off again. And that's sort of how it how it worked and it was really 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 hard i've got paperwork you know huge huge folders of sort of call logs and notes and it's really amazing so the flight that they came on was from south africa Mm -hmm. to the uk which is the longest journey that anyone's survived right yes why i mentioned that they were coming from south africa is that they were actually from mozambique right and yes then you actually went to Mozambique yes. to find out a little bit more about Carlito and his family. Yes. So we knew that Carlito was from Mozambique, but we didn't know whether Justin was from Mozambique okay. or South Africa. It turns out that he's actually from, from Johannesburg, but our search sort of did very much focus on Mozambique. Mm-hmm. After this huge reach out across social media, people were getting in touch with us, but it was actually quite difficult to to work out because of the language barrier to actually narrow that down. And we were thrown off on a few wild goose chases along the way. And then his friend reached out to us and was really, really willing to talk to me. And it was so refreshing because no one had been willing to speak to me. And and this conversation, I'll always remember it, within the space of about half an hour, I found out all this amazing stuff about Carlito. I also found out that he had his family in Mozambique. So, mm. so I managed to get myself out to Mozambique and... I think if you if you consider the sorts of struggles that I'd had trying to get to this point, when I went out to Mozambique, I was very much going out with this list of questions. And I, in hindsight, hadn't spent any time processing the emotional side of, of the journey because when I arrived in Mozambique, it was a really emotional trip. And I came away feeling incredibly sad. And I essentially discovered just a huge amount of grief and tragedy and loss and that was a bit of a gear change in my personal journey with the project because I'd set out to sort of find this answer and I hadn't anticipated I suppose the amount of emotion that I had invested as well and really upset me actually going to Mozambique and meeting all of his network and his family and friends because what you realize is that they have lost this huge part in their life and that again coming back to sort of this idea of a headline being plastered all over the newsstand in the UK you realize that the the loss is like any of us would have 
and was so raw, you know, that was the thing is that they were, they had no means of retrieving Carlito to give him a burial. So there was this, there, there was no closure is what I found, I suppose. Sorry, I'm rambling, but no, not at all. You're not at all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you, do you think that that was the point that you really felt the human impact of this story meeting his family? Why um, do you think that had such an, an emotional impact on you? I think the honest answer to that is that all the way through the project, because I'm a documentarian and you have to remain neutral and you have to come at it with a sort of journalistic head on. I naturally assumed that this story was a tragic story and that the people involved in it were innocent and that this tragic incident had happened to them. And I felt really sort of appalled by that. But you know, there is the opposite, you know, there is that counterweight to that, which is, I had no idea what the story was. So there was always in the back of my mind, this idea of like, what happens if this isn't the story I think it is? What happens if actually I'm chasing, you know, some rogues? And so I think when I got out to Mozambique, but it wasn't until I suppose I arrived in their front room, you know, I arrived at their house and, and his family was so willing to talk to me and they were so willing to share the emotional impact of it. And I wasn't really prepared for that because I was still in sort of my own fight of getting information. And, and so it was just a, a real, a sort of a real shift to this day. I can remember my thoughts as I got on the plane to leave Mozambique and I was really sad. And, and now, you know, years later, I, I still feel like that. I feel sad that what sounds like this story of hope and ambition ended so tragically because it does appear like Carlito was sort of in search of providing his family with a better life and more stability. And I think to, if I'm fair, you know, you do have to question how much he was aware of what he was doing mm -hmm. in regards to the risks. Shamila, Shamila's his daughter, had never ever seen a photograph of her dad. And, and I had a photograph of him that I showed them both and she just cried. You know, I, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I, I found that really difficult to observe, actually. It was difficult as a viewer as well. <laughs> that part definitely stuck yeah. with me because that's the moment where you see him as a father, as a husband, as a family man with a family. And you talk a little bit there about hope, about, you know, a dream of a future. At this point, did, did you understand or did you feel like you could connect with why Carlito had made the decisions that he had? I think that's really interesting because I'm, I'm not sure whether I'll be able to articulate this really, but as someone that's grown up in the UK and as someone that is a filmmaker and lives in London and has a very comfortable life, I started working on this project assuming that I was really sort of quite, I suppose, worldly wise. And, and what I discovered is that even though I felt like I had a good grasp of what situations people find themselves in, that in reality, I had absolutely no idea. And that the severity and the real day-to-day -day impact of their difficulties were experiences I had never experienced. They were experiences I, I knew nothing about and had never felt myself I was very conscious of that because you know I, I didn't come at it from being a, an activist or a campaigner in that space I came at it 
from a sort of filmmaking curiosity perspective and I found myself in this situation and and actually when I watch the film I sort of feel a bit cringe at times because you can obviously see that I can't find my words like there were just there were just no words <laughs> so what do you say I've learned a lot and um and uh yeah it's it's going to be something that I remember forever I think because I did end up on this accidental journey and I feel like the my personal experience is almost as big as the physical one I went on did I just answer yeah, your question no, did I just go off on a complete tangent very much like so I you did, did and mm-hmm. it was beautiful and and do, do you feel that his wife and his daughter they had an understanding of why they why he did what he did I think that his wife and daughter are still have quite a few questions that they haven't been able to answer because he, um, Carlito had left to go and find work, uh, which is quite common, I think, mm. and had returned on numerous occasions. And then on this particular occasion had gone and never, ever came back. And I think it would be true to say that Anna has some anger about that because you could say that it was a a sort of selfish action that he could have done more to inform them of what he was doing. And then for Shamila, she was young when it happened, but she's growing up not just without a father, but with this awful story of what happened to him. Mm -hmm. And Anna, I think, is doing a brilliant job of looking after um, Shamila, but she's having to do it alone without any help and it's tough and with the pandemic hitting you know I'm really worried about what situation they're now in because the situation that they were in when I met them was that they had very little and they were struggling day day to day it's super tough and I guess then when you met Justin eventually he was able to answer some of those questions right so let's talk a little bit about him yeah the survivor of so this incredible journey so the film really you know i was talking about the fact that the film sort of the community made the film well mm-hmm. i think the best example of this is that um probably in the first year or so of making the film when i literally had no ideas of what to do and we'd hit dead end after dead end um i got in the car one day and i drove up to liverpool because um someone had sort of given me a tip off that he might be in liverpool and i'd spent the day with google translate on my phone wandering around asking people whether they'd heard of the story or whether they knew um, anything about him and the way that i found justin was that somebody i'd given my number to had kept it and had bumped into him and essentially phoned and left me a voicemail and said, I think I've found him. And so of course that is ridiculous as how, you know, you might find this person you've been looking for for so long. That is that ob- must have felt so great listening it was, to that voice message. <laughs> it was the most peculiar day because essentially it was Christmas and I was driving to um, Wales to see my parents and the phone rang. I thought it was a, a, another project or work or, you know, I sort of avoided it because I was like, I'm on, I'm on holiday. I've, work my guts out I'm not I'm not answering the phone and then I then there was this thing in the back of my head and I was thinking I I should listen to that so I pull over I listen to this voicemail back and I swear it was a wind up I literally there wasn't like the euphoric like oh my god there was like that cannot be legit like totally that definitely (laughs) cannot be legit and then when I phoned him back it wasn't even like sort of like I might have found him he was like oh yeah here's his number mate (laughs) it was like totally like yeah, no, sure. He's, he's really up for speaking to you. It was like, it was unbelievable. 
and that first initial conversation I had, you know, with that, with the, with the guy that found him was just sort of amazing because it, it sort of did feel like the whole thing had come full 360. And, you know, this idea that we are one global community really a worldwide tribe a worldwide tribe (laughs) the fact that we're a worldwide tribe exactly um you know the answers were there i was just looking in the wrong place really and then of course that built towards me going to meet justin for the first time which was absolutely terrifying of course because i had no idea whether he'd be willing to talk to me whether he'd be willing to be on camera literally no idea and you've got a lot riding on that right like basically years of time invested into this in the hope that like he would be up for it just takes him saying oh no i don't want to be on camera for you to be like ah okay yeah (laughs) that's literally my whole film out the window (laughs) totally 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 like over the course of the years the film stopped in its entirety then it would start again then it would stop again he was just so lovely and warm and open and willing to talk to me and you know sort of said to me I can't believe you've been looking for me for that long and you know coming from South London it turned out that he'd been living in Elephant Castle oh my god oh god down the road I've literally (laughs) probably cycled past you every day on my way to work brilliant but I just want to say that that is what is so profound when you meet Justin in the film is that you probably have cycled past him people in Liverpool and you say this in the film you know are going about there every day and in the midst of them is this guy Justin yeah he's on crutches but otherwise you've got no no signal as to what he might have experienced or been through to get here and to be living the same life or have the same opportunities afforded to him as you or I have right and it's absolutely mind-blowing what he went through to get here he's a normal guy from the outside but actually this story is yeah just absolutely wild so what did he have to say when you met him what did he tell you well it's sort of it's an interesting conversation isn't it because essentially I had hundreds and hundreds of questions for him but sort of one of the first questions I asked him was whether he was okay and he he was really open to telling me that he was okay and that um although life was hard because he has got some difficulties both in his day-to-day life and with his physical health mm-hmm. that he was okay and that he'd found some security and some safety and that he had built a network in Liverpool and that the people of Liverpool had been very kind to him which I was really very pleased about and then he told me you couldn't, you know, it wasn't, it was without prompting, really. He talked about his loss of Carlito and they were best friends and they had lived with one another and they had discussed what they wanted for their futures. And they had obviously come up with the plan to get on the plane together. Mm. But a lot of their relationship was based on trying to find a better life that they felt was out there. And that was quite profound for me because what they did was incredibly dangerous and, and, and maybe there is some naivety in terms of their planning of it, in, you could argue. But their motivation was so pure. And not only was it really pure, but it was really understandable. It's like, that's what we all think. That's what drives all of our lives. And they're all of the things that we want to find. So 
that's what I thought was quite interesting. And, and, and also the fact that they had each other. Now, obviously, um, Carlito had a wife and a, and a daughter at home. Justin didn't. Justin didn't have any family. So Carlito was his family. And he talked about getting on the plane and the last conversation he had with Carlito. And then he talked about the fact that it took a long time until he realized that Carlito had died. And that's why I decided that we would go and visit Carlito together. We had a long conversation about it and that's what we decided to do. Just yeah. just to, to understand that fully. So that's because Justin was in a coma for six months. Yeah, sorry, after. I, didn't, I didn't explain that very well. Um, right? <laughs> yeah, so, so when when Justin landed in London, he was found at the airport and taken to hospital and he was in a coma for a very long time and then moved into a detention centre and then over the course of a very long time had been moved and finally placed in Liverpool. So immediately after the incident, he was unaware of what had happened to Carlito and had assumed that Carlito was okay and somewhere, you know, in the mm. UK. And it was only when a security officer came up to him and showed him a picture and said, is this your friend? And he said, yes. And they said, well you know your your it. idea in him yeah and it was you know it was interesting because the only way that Anna and Shamila in Mozambique found out what had happened was because an official came and wanted to do a DNA test of Shamila to prove that it was her father and so can you imagine that you know it's not like they got the news when it happened they no. just he just stopped talking to them or stopped answering their calls yes yeah, absolutely heartbreaking the bit that broke my heart as well you know is when you said that you found out that he was still here in the UK because they hadn't actually identified any relatives or anyone to repatriate. He hadn't been repatriated or anything like that. So when you say that you and Justin went to see him, do you mean he had a grave in the yeah, UK? Yeah, so the sort of lovely part of the story in a way is that I found out that um, Carlita had been given a pauper's grave, which is like a council mm -hmm. burial. And I managed to track down a few people that had worked at the, uh, the funeral directors. And that's how I actually found out where the grave was. And it turned out that the, the, the lovely guy that had organized the burial went to Carlito's graveside every week to pick litter and to make mm. sure that there was no weeds or that everything was clean and tidy. And he'd been doing that every week. And when I asked him, how he had decided to do that. He said, well, you can't have someone who has died in a different country without anybody looking out for him. And that, that's the sort of compassion that I found quite frequently in all sorts of different places. I suppose, you know, there, there's this idea that everyone's hostile and there's no compassion. But actually, when you pick, a, pick at the surface, you quite often find quite a lot of compassion. And I found some absolutely brilliant everyday heroes I met another guy who was involved with the burial who'd taken the time to write a little passage to read at the burial. He'd, he'd researched it, so only from what's written in the newspapers, but had written this passage because he believed that that was the right thing to do, which it was. Oh, that's so beautiful. And then you and Justin went together. We did. Um, which is a beautiful part of the film as yeah. well. We came down from Liverpool to the cemetery in London and spent the afternoon at Carlito's graveside. I obviously gave um, Justin some time 
to chat to him. It was quite a powerful day because I think Justin had maybe underestimated how much that would mean to him, you know, like, well, maybe that's not right. Maybe, maybe Justin thought that that would never be possible. I think it's probably fairer to say, and that he had come to terms with the fact that he wouldn't be able to do it. So when it happened, it was, it was a really nice day. And, and we, uh, he wanted to take a bottle of whiskey <laughs> and some flowers. And so that's what he did. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about Justin because he answered some questions um, in the film that I had as I was watching it. And I want to talk a little bit again about what you said about there potentially being an, a naivety around the risk, right? But actually what struck me is when you ask him the question in the film, you know, well, did you know that you would run out of oxygen? He kind of bats it away and says that that did that, didn't matter. It was kind of irrelevant to me, that bit, you know, like all that mattered was that we wanted to get out, that we wanted something new, that we needed something different, right? And that, it felt like that feeling in him was much more powerful um, than the risks. Yeah, no, Is that fair to say? I think so. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I think, uh, oh, I'm creaking on the chair. Let me stop. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> I know, creaky, um, creaky benches. Creaky bench. Um, <laughs> When we, when we sat down for that conversation, I wanted to ask him all about the, the, the flight. And you're right in the sense that he, he talked me through the fact that him and Carlito had had a book on engineering and had read up on planes. They um, talked to me about, you know, the fact that they packed some sandwiches and wore all of their clothes because they knew it was going to be cold. They talked about the fact that they chose the plane with the British flag on the side because they knew they wouldn't have to travel over water and therefore it would be warmer. And then when you pushed beyond that to sort of, did you know how dangerous it was? You suddenly realized that they were willing to take the risk mm -hmm. in their minds. It was worth taking the risk. There was no gamble about it. It was that this was their only option and this is what they were going to do. And I think that again is a really good example of a part of a part of this experience that I can't, you know, I just can't comprehend that or I can't relate. Yeah. And I think that in itself should be a clear enough indicator of what their life must have been like. You know, we can, I'm sure, use our imaginations for that. One of the questions I really want to ask is, you said at the beginning of this conversation that, you know, as a filmmaker, you don't want to tell people what to think, that you want them to make that decision for themselves. But it sounds to me like you maybe went into this journey with a certain outlook and actually going to Mozambique, meeting Justin, maybe changed your own opinion or feelings or emotional attachment to the story, right? Hey. Doorbell. Doorbell. <laughs> Hang on a sec. I'll let Joe get it. Um, and this is something that I struggle with because... I have a personal um, attachment to our four uh, foster brothers who are all refugees, asylum seekers themselves. And I recognize that like in my storytelling, there is a bias, right? There is a natural bias. And I do want a certain outcome from the way that I tell stories. But as you say, you don't want to be too prescriptive with that. And I just want to to delve into that a little bit further because it's something that is really interesting to me and I do think that you round up the film with a very beautiful piece that I think sums up the journey very very well and does bring us to a conclusion of 
okay, surely we can see ourselves in these two people, right? Surely we can recognize that like with those same circumstances, potentially we could, we would make the same decision. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting because the closing words to the film I wrote in one go and didn't edit, um, which I think is really telling. And when I listen to the closing statement of that film, it still is completely and utterly how I feel. Mm -hmm. And the motivation was to have the film act as a journalistic tribute. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt quite strongly that by telling this one story that it would enable, hopefully, lots of other people to be able to have you know, to tell their story in some way. And so I think when you ask about sort of how and why I made the film, that was sort of my starting point, which I do very much stand by and to open up that meaningful conversation. And I think that that's happened. Like when I speak to people and they're like, oh my goodness, your film, they always say that they ended up having a bigger conversation about it in their household or at Mm -hmm. work or wherever they went. And, And that is the bit that I am the proudest of, you know, that is what we all need to do, which is what you are completely smashing. Thank you. I appreciate that. But yeah, you're absolutely right in that, you know, we're not necessarily just talking about people who have attempted to hide in the bottom of a plane here. We're talking about human beings. And I really feel that like showing this story and recognizing Justin and Carlito in ourselves, that does hopefully encourage more empathy and compassion to people who are making these dangerous journeys by all means, whether that's crossing the channel, the Sahara Desert, the Mediterranean, all of these journeys that we are hearing about in these headlines, actually being able to put a face to some of those headlines and thinking about, oh yeah, these are individual human beings. I really do feel that your film serves that purpose, changing the narrative around immigration in the UK. You've just articulated it far better than I can, but you know, I think what I've learned is that I am very privileged and I've been very fortunate with the circumstances that I've been born into and the life that I lead. But I do now appreciate that there are circumstances that can be out of your control, that can lead you to a place where you have no other option. And we are inundated by all sorts of things, not just the news every single day. But what we have is one another and what I hope people do is just take a moment to digest what they might have seen that day and just take a minute to think about it and if they do feel like they have a very strong reaction one way just spend a moment to contemplate the other foot and and think about it and and actually just moving on from that you know during the film and to this day I now host refugees for an amazing organization called C4WS in Camden. And I decided that I wanted to actively do something to support the people that live within my community. And so I've had two long-term friends come to stay with me. And that is something I'd like to continue into the future. Amazing. So what's that organization again? Say it loud and clear, because I think that's really good for people to hear. It's um, it's called C4WS. C4WS. And they're and in Camden. Refugees at Home is another organization that you can do that through, right? That if you have a spare room, you can offer it up to even short-term uh, refugees and asylum seekers who are looking for housing. And yeah, lots of people always ask me about fostering, but I think this is a, a more accessible way. To- it's totally accessible. And the thing is, is that I, I my, my job is quite sort of, 
um, chaotic, I suppose. And my routine changes and my schedule flips around all the time. And so actually the hosting is perfect because, um, I wasn't able to say every, you know, I can volunteer on these days. Mm -hmm. I just said, here's a dorky. It's great. great. It's and great. you've got someone new and interesting and cool to live with. Yeah, like, like totally so win, cool. Win. <laughs> epic, epic food and great chat. Amazing. I love that. <laughs> and has it um, has this experience led you to want to make more films around immigration or migration at all? Is there anything else in the works um, that we can look forward to? <laughs> the film that I'm currently working on is based out in Yemen mm-hmm. and is following a group of um civilians who are trying to document the 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 crimes and the um impact that the war is having on their local community and it's very much their film we are just helping them to facilitate it and that is something i'm deeply passionate about because so little is known of um the conflict in yemen and it's the story that people need to become aware of citizen journalism it's such a great means to telling a story as well I think and that access and that perspective that coming in from the outside would never give you right it's inside out rather than outside in yeah exactly we underestimate a conversation with someone that's what I think is so bizarre society teaches us to put our heads down and walk straight ahead and we're only on this planet once. We're like a ball of atoms flying through the universe. Why aren't we listening to other people's stories? We all have one to tell. So it, it just seems bonkers that we don't spend more time asking people questions and engaging with other people. Yeah. Sometimes I walk down the street from the station to my house and I think about how behind every door is this like complex web of, you know, individuals that are kind of a network together and with feelings and emotions and experiences. And yeah, I feel exactly the same. It's fascinating. It's a feeling that I can't quite articulate, but I often think about it. (laughs) It's so fascinating. I just think to myself, what stories don't I know? And, 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 you know, this idea that it is so fascinating because we're on this planet and we all have different you know every single one of our days is different and then if you quad, like multiply that by the number of people on the planet and the number of days they live think about all the stories you oh don't know God. about it's amazing isn't it I hope you enjoyed the first episode of season five of the Worldwide Tribe podcast. If you'd like to watch Rich's film The Man Who Fell From The Sky it's available for free on 4AD. I'd love to know your thoughts on this episode and what you would like to hear more of for the rest of season five. I already have some amazing guests lined up, but I'm always open to suggestions and questions. So to get in touch, send me a direct message on Instagram at the Worldwide Tribe. Other actions you can take to support this podcast and join the Worldwide Tribe are to visit our shop and to buy a t-shirt or a hoodie or donate. All details are in the show notes and in my Instagram bio. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it, rate it and leave a review. It helps more people to find this podcast and it helps me to keep bringing you these stories. The more people who come on this journey with us, the more connected we all become and the more we unite as one worldwide tribe. Shout out to Alexander Wells at alexanderwells.co.uk for our audio production and original score and to Ez Stone for mixing this episode.